You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.3, The Chevalier of Axis, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, I'm a lifelong Gundam fan, and even though this show is more than 30 years old, all of my takes have been specially coded, so they are always fresh. And I'm Nina, new to Devil Zeta, and ready to go to Fa with all of my problems. I would trust Fa. Fa would give good advice. Oh, definitely. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 380 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Tom S., James M., Scott C., Rye I., Sarah M., Mark D., Andy, Richard, Matthew C., Joni E., Phil M., Kelvin F., Bira D., Gord Captain, and Panda and Woten. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And I know a couple of you are returning patrons. Thanks and welcome back. A big Genki MSB thank you also goes out to Mark J and Zach G for sending us some research books from our wish list. As of this episode's release date, Saturday, August 22nd, there are just 10 days until MSB's second podversary. We are also really close to having 400 patrons. Help us reach that benchmark and secure for yourself one of our limited edition commemorative pins by becoming a patron at the $5 level or higher by September 1st. For pictures of the pins, previews of patron-exclusive content, and more, visit GundamPodcast.com Patreon. This week, we are covering Gundam Double Zeta Episodes 3, The Night of Endra, or Endra no Kishi, and 4, Hot-Blooded Mashima, or Neketsu no Mashima. After the recap and our talkback, we have part 1 of our research about the name Shangri-La, where it comes from, and what it says about our characters, the world of Double Zeta, and the show itself. But first, let's tune our receivers to Radio Free Shangri-La. You're listening to the new adventures of Detective James Stryker on Radio Free Shangri-La, the only radio serial featuring real cases ripped straight from the headlines. This week's case, The Girl from Shangri-La. The sign on the door says James Stryker, Private Investigator. Any case, any client. Mostly I get small jobs from poor folk. Fifteen gilas to track down a stolen motorcycle, or twenty for a runoff husband. Some months I cover my bills and taxes with a little left over for my bookie. Some months I gotta go hungry to pay the breathing fee. I'm always on the edge. I gotta stay sharp if I don't want to get cut. 
That all changed when she walked in. Posh type. The kind with an accent you gotta pay for. And legs so long I thought she'd been designed by Katoki. She swanned around the room like she was at a society ball, having an intimate conversation with my coat rack, running her fingers over the top of my filing cabinet like she was sampling exotic canapes off a silver platter held by some stuffed shirt butler. All the while, she's making airy comments. They tell me you're a man who can get things done, Mr. Stryker. Call me Jim, please. Are you an expert in finding things, Mr. Stryker? If that's what you need me to do. What about people? Can you find them, Mr. Stryker? I wanted to tell her to just get to the point already, but I could smell the money on her, and rent was already two weeks past due. Eventually, she settled in to stand at the window with her back to me. The light through the blinds zebra-striped her face. I must have passed whatever Byzantine test she was running, because that's when she started in on the real deal. A few days ago, a mobile worker in a mobile suit crashed into my mansion. I've already gone to the Federation forces, but they say the mobile suit was stolen. And they refuse to accept responsibility. That sounds like them. So what do you want me to do about it? I should think that was obvious, Mr. Stryker. You're going to identify the thieving vandals responsible for this dreadful crime. And in exchange, I will pay you 1,000 gillis today. And 1,000 more when you give me their names. She had me then, and she knew it. There was no way I could turn down that kind of money. But I still had to know. Why come to me? Putting the screws on a couple of petty space Nord criminals is a job for the Titans. Oh, I tried going to the Titans first. But I'm told they're all dead. I thought it would be a simple case. Pass a few gilas around to get a copy of the security tapes from the spaceport, run the registration on that mobile worker, and spend the rest of the week counting my money. Little did I know that this was the case that would change everything. Not just for me, not just for Shangri-La, but for the whole Earth sphere. <laughs> next time on the new adventures of Detective James Stryker. Hey, uh, Stryker, what are you doing here? You haven't come to watch one of my unlicensed junkyard mobile suit fights since your wife left you. After you lost your house, betting it all on Gal Goo Greg. <laughs> I've got my gun trained on you, Lieutenant Yazan Gable. Now put your hands in the air. I assure you, Detective Stryker, I can make it worth your while. Whatever she's paying you, I'll triple it. I'm not interested, Mr. Q. Uh, put out an APB on a green motorcycle. I repeat, APB on a green motorcycle. Don't miss the Coriolis Caper!
And now the recap for the Night of Endra and Hot-Blooded Mashima. Glinting in space, a metal suitcase, jettisoned from a nearby Axis ship, is retrieved by some Shangri-La officials. On opening it, they are stunned to realize the case is full of gold bars. A bribe. To allow the ship to dock even though an Ayug ship, the Argama, is already in port. It's not as if they can start fighting each other inside the colony, the lead official explains, accepting the bribe. But his subordinate, Chimata, not only objects, he warns the Argama's crew, going so far as to lead the ship to a hiding place inside the colony. Judo and friends, still scheming to steal the Argama, are climbing through desolate hills behind the spaceport, hoping to sneak through a back entrance. Another friend, L, arrives with Lena, who is there to cajole Judo into abandoning his plan. They are arguing back and forth when the Argama leaves port, and Judo, in a chibi mobile suit, chases after it. Once close enough, he shoots a grapple and, leaving the chibi mobile suit hanging there, climbs onto the ship. The commander of the Axis ship Endra is Mashima Tsero. His mission, to secure the colony for Axis and Haman Karn. He wears a pink rose in his lapel, given to him by Haman herself, and specially preserved to keep it beautiful and blooming forever. His memories of Haman are rose-tinted as he blushes to recall her calling him a true knight. When he receives word that the famed Argama is in Shangri-La, he is determined to capture the ship for Haman and sets out by himself in his personal mobile suit, the Gallus J. The engineers beg him to wait until they are done with tune-ups, or at least until they can put the hatch back on, but Mashima is impetuous. On the bridge of the Argama, they finally notice the chibi mobile suit hanging from the ship. They spot Judo on the ship's security cameras, but Bright orders them to leave him be, remembering how Amaro and Camille after him stole mobile suits before becoming famous pilots. Sneaking through the ship, Judo is forced to duck into a room to avoid a crew member coming down the hall. He finds himself in a kitchen, with Shintan Kum making the next day's breakfast. Their mutual shock has no time to register. A crew member comes in hoping for a snack, and Judo holds himself against the ceiling directly over the doorway. Shintan Kum send the crewman away with a piece of toast, but don't give Judo away. Afterwards, Shinta says it's because he is an excellent judge of character and he can tell Judo is a good guy. Introductions are interrupted by the arrival of Astanaji, who launches himself at Judo only to be held back by Shinta and Kum while Judo makes his escape. Alarms sound throughout the ship. Mashima has arrived. He lands the Gallus J atop the Argama and threatens to drive his beam saber through the bridge unless they surrender. If they comply, he will let the crew go unharmed. The Argama has no mobile suit pilots but Fa, and she has not yet launched the barely flightworthy Methus. But while Mashima threatens, Judo, with the help of Shintan Kum, plants a bomb on the Gallus J's leg. When it explodes, it knocks the mobile suit off the Argama and sends it careening to the ground. Fa finally launches and gives chase, while the orphans guide Judo to the Zeta. His help comes in the nick of time. The Methus' veneers aren't working properly, and it is only Judo's intervention that saves Fa from a deadly attack. She leaves to retrieve Judo's friends and sister, who are dangerously close to the fighting, 
and Judo stays to fight Mashima. His ineptitude with the Zeta constantly being interpreted as tactics by the more experienced pilot, who cannot imagine that he is fighting an untrained beginner. They chase each other through the colony, Judo miraculously holding his own until Mashima knocks the Zeta to the ground. The Gauss J leaps into the air, driving its beam saber down toward the Zeta. Somehow, Judo dodges the Zeta's head out of the way and deploys his own beam saber straight through the head of the Gallus J. A shocked Mashima retreats in disgrace, and Judo returns the Zeta to the Argama with assurances that he will try to steal it again. In fact, he and his friends stick around long enough to see the Argama, with local civil servant Chimata's aid, hide itself under a pile of debris from the junkyard. Then they all go home to rest and try to steal the Zeta some other day. The next day, Judo and company go looking for the Argama, but the ship is being moved often and is not the last place El saw it. Perpetually frustrated by her brother's truancy and criminal activity, Lina decides to get help from Fa. Mashima is staying in a palace-like hotel, paying for his stay in gold. The next day, he decides to begin by inspecting the colony, and his subordinate, Goten, acts as his driver. Goten asks permission to show Mashima something, but when he reveals that they are going to the local hospital to assess the feasibility of taking injured Ayug crew members hostage, or using them as shields, Mashima is horrified. His chivalric sensibilities will not accept such cowardly behavior, and he orders Goten to turn the car around. When Goten hesitates, Mashima grabs the wheel, sending the car skidding and almost crashing into a small group outside the hospital entrance. It is Fa, pushing Camille in a wheelchair and accompanied by Shinta and Kum. Mashima rushes to them to make sure they aren't hurt, and is moved by Fa's beauty and the way she shielded Camille when the car went past. He imagines her to be Camille's nurse, and when Kum declares, No, she's his girlfriend, Mashima seems quite overcome. The young man, damaged in war, the beautiful young lover, a veritable flower in the slums. Lina arrives and joins Fa and the others as they walk away, leaving Mashima behind. Next, Gotten takes Mashima to the junkyard, where some workmen have set a pitfall trap for the Zeta and have hidden the Gallus J on the back of a truck covered in liquor crates. El and Judo, searching the junkyard for signs of the Zeta, overhear Goten and Mashima discussing plans to capture the Zeta and the Argama, and Judo is determined they won't cheat him out of his bounty. Seeing Mashima start up the Gallus J, El runs off to get the rest of their crew, while Judo chases the mobile suit. He manages to catch a grappling hook on it, and is soon being dragged behind while the Gallus J walks on. Fa, with Shinta, Kum, and Lina, is driving through the junkyard looking for Judo and company when they spot the crew taking off in their own truck. Before Fa can follow, the jeep becomes stuck in its tracks, and there it will stay for the remainder of the excitement. Suddenly noticing that a young man is hanging off the back of his mobile suit, Mashima warns Judo, get down, you could get hurt. Cheekily, Judo replies that he's here to steal and scrap mobile suits. While Mashima tries to shake Judo off, Judo's friends race to catch up while they fill bottles with sand and build a makeshift slingshot. Once next to the Gallus J, they fire these bottles into the cockpit, filling it with sand and blinding Mashima. This is the perfect moment for Judo to climb into the cockpit, but he is no match for Mashima hand-to-hand. -hand. 
He is pinned and taking a beating when his flailing leg hits the mobile suit's controls, sending it pitching forward and tipping both of them out. They just barely manage to hang on. Gripping their meager handholds, they kick at each other until Mashima knocks Judo loose into the hands of his waiting friends. From there, it becomes a race to the Argama. Again, Bright anticipates their coming, and again, he lets it happen. While Judo's friends, El and Bicha, Ino and Mondo, are snatched up by the Argama crew members, Judo makes it to the Zeta cockpit. With more skill and control than he has shown thus far, he even manages to pilot it out into the colony, to run right into Mashima. They engage, then Judo takes off away from the Argama. Mashima cannot shoot, the risk of civilian casualties in the colony is too great, and so he regretfully decides to use the pitfall. Once he tricks the Zeta into position, the pitfall is triggered. An explosion opens a hole in the outside of the colony and drags the Zeta into space. While being pulled through, the Zeta grabs one of the Gals J's legs and drags it out into space as well. The Zeta is losing oxygen. Bright tries to help Judo pilot by giving him instructions over the radio. Grabbing hold of the Zeta, the Gals J speeds toward the outside of the colony. Judo seems to have given up when the sound of Bright, his friends, and his sister encouraging him from the bridge of the Argama gives him a sudden burst of energy. He cleverly manages to maneuver himself clear and manages to launch the Gals J away. Mashima retreats, and the Argama sends someone to retrieve Judo. Tom pointed out this is the first time in over a year we have covered two episodes of the show in a single podcast episode. However, these two episodes really feel like the introduction of Mashima Sero. I had a stunning moment of clarity <laughs> watching these episodes for what, the fourth time? <laughs> uh, but Mashima is Don Quixote. Explain. <laughs> Don Quixote's whole thing is that he has this anachronistic idea of chivalry that he's obsessed with, that he's formed this idea of how to be a, a chivalric person, and that is what he wants to live, even though it's completely out of step with society, and it colors everything about his life. And we see this in Mashima. He describes himself as a knight. He challenges... <laughs> judo to a duel when they're fighting <laughs> judo doesn't realize that and doesn't realize that there's etiquette involved in what mashima <laughs> is doing uh mashima applies that to you know judo's behavior or to proposed plans as too cowardly too dishonorable he wants to lead from the front none of this commanding from the rear for him i mean he even at one point says such and such a strategy might not be chivalrous i think that's a good comparison. Another comparison that links this to Don Quixote is Quixote's relationship with the lady Dulcinea, who is a young woman onto whom he projects this image of like the fair princess, the, the maiden of medieval stories, which uh, is not actually accurate. 
when Mashima is having these flashbacks, when he's remembering his interactions with Haman, those are portrayed in the show as kind of unreal. I don't think those uh, reflect the literal reality of Mashima's interactions with Haman. His perception of her is filtered through his own... Um, his own insistence on seeing the world in this way. Despite all evidence to the contrary. Unfortunately, I've never read Don Quixote, so I cannot speak to the text as well as I would like to, but I know enough about the story to also know that Quixote's squire, Sancho Panza, is much more in tune with the real world and sort of like pokes fun at Don Quixote sometimes and sometimes just sort of helps him move through the real world. And that is absolutely the vibe I get from Mashima's subordinate, who is also his driver. Gotten. Gotten, right. Thank you. Gotten go. <laughs> Gotten go. <laughs> what a good name. Uh, but he is the one who snaps Mashima out of his various reverie, his rose-tinted ideas, to be like, oh, hey, we, we have things to do. <laughs> and in classic leader fashion, when Mashima ultimately fails, he blames Gotten for his failure, even though Gotten was just doing what Mashima had told him to do. Now, you said you haven't read Don Quixote, but have you seen the Wishbone adaptation? <laughs> I'm afraid not. <sighs> well, then I've got a leg up on you. I wanted to come back for a moment to Mashima's memories of Haman, mainly because initially I wasn't certain if his memories were not quite right or if she had sort of understood enough about him to manipulate him. <laughs> in the way that she thought would be most effective. However, the sort of haziness, the sparkles, various visual effects that they use when he remembers these things make them seem unreal. Yes. Now, this is a little bit difficult for us to analyze because Gundam has not generally been in the habit of including flashbacks. So we can't look at something like this and say, this visual language matches or doesn't match prior flashbacks and so we can tell whether what we're seeing is fuzzy and unreal because it's a memory a flashback or if it's fuzzy and unreal because it's inaccurate however there are some other flashbacks in this set of two episodes bright has his flashback to when amuro stole the gundam and he has his flashback to when camille stole the gundam mark ii uh, and those don't have this kind of soft focus look to them the other thing about those flashbacks when Mashima is remembering Haman is that she's drawn differently. Her facial expressions are much softer. Kinder. Her, her voice is softer. Her face is much more rounded. Her eyes are more like big, round, inviting, not the narrow, harsh, angular eyes that she showed in Zeta Gundam. Of course... That could just be off-model animation. That in and of itself is not enough, but it does fit the pattern, and it's consistent across the different flashbacks that Mashima has. Yeah, I think that consistency really speaks to uh, what I have called and probably will continue to call Mashima's rose-tinted memories. And in one of those rose-tinted memories, there's actually some internal inconsistency, which I think goes to 
emphasize what we're saying about these memories not being literally true, which is uh, in the, I think it's the second of three, when he is remembering Haman speaking to a whole uh, convocation of Xi'an officers, who she calls her her eyes and ears in the colonies, presumably a sort of advanced wave of uh, infiltrators. Um, they do a wide shot of all of them uh, from the back, and then they cut to a shot from the front, and we see Mashima wearing a different uniform, standing in front of everybody in a place of honor. The thing is, though, he's not there in the first shot. The shot from behind, uh, you would be able to see him if he had been standing there, but he's not there. I think that's probably just an animation error. <laughs> not that there isn't plenty of evidence. I mean, his insistence in that first fight against Judo of thinking of his opponent as a very skilled fighter. Uh, despite all evidence to the contrary. Right, despite this person like fumbling with their beam saber, you know, ah, he landed in fighting stance. <laughs> oh, you want to you want to fight me hand to hand very well. And when I mentioned that he's treating it like a duel, the whole way he introduces himself to judo in the beginning of the fight when he says who he is and what ship he's affiliated with, like there was a tradition of battlefield duels. At certain points in ancient Japan, I know it happens in Tale of the Heike multiple times mm -hmm. that like when commanders were going to be fighting each other, when sort of highly placed or high ranking individuals were going to be fighting each other, you had to make sure that each of you knew who the other was. <laughs> and there was an, an etiquette around it for all that it was deadly battle. Who you fight, who you kill and who kills you are all essential components for defining your heroic aristocratic identity, both in your life and afterwards. And of course, there are similar traditions in lots of other cultures. You, you go back to the Homeric poems, the Iliad in particular, you get a lot of this same uh, dueling etiquette of announcing yourself and your great deeds, and they say their great deeds, and then you fight. Or, in some cases, then you realize that your grandfathers once visited each other's houses, and therefore you're almost as close as family, and you can't possibly fight. <laughs> his objection to the fact that his mobile suit is hidden by alcohol bottles. He doesn't <laughs> mind that it's hidden. He understands that's necessary, but couldn't they have done something more picturesque? More elegant. <laughs> Liquor bottles are just so low. He is so moved when he sees Fa with Camille. <laughs> and he finds out that Camille was injured in the war. And here is this beautiful young maiden taking care of him. He has incredibly refined sensitivities. Yeah. Well, and one of the characteristics of a lot of chivalric behavior and poetry and the way it was all sort of structured, there's a whole lot of longing from afar. There's very little consummation. <laughs> <laughs> it was very romantic to love someone who you could never be with. Right. I mean, this is the whole tradition of like the courtly romance. Yeah. All of this connects very nicely to the title of the episode. In English, it's Night of the Endra. In Japanese, it's Endra no Kishi. Kishi here is the term you would use for uh, a mounted samurai or a mounted gentleman in general. And it's the term that gets used for European knights. I also wondered if some of Mashima's visual design was influenced by uh, shoujo anime and shoujo manga of this time. That's something we may want to look into. Uh, but they give him the Bishonen sparkles, uh, which is Bishonen 
we've talked about before as a beautiful young man. He's obviously a, a little older, but he's, I don't know. It's a Gundam, so who knows how old he is. He's 18. <laughs> oh my gosh, are you kidding? I am not. <laughs> I would have said like 27. Yeah, anime age is fake. Like, th this is a persistent problem uh, with anime character ages, Gundam in particular. His attitude, his appearance, his level of responsibility, none of this is consistent with an 18-year-old. No. However... <laughs> Uh, at various points, they have like a little musical cue and they have him trail little animated sparkles, <laughs> which is a thing that happens sometimes when we are meant to understand that an anime character is particularly beautiful. And the whole affectation with the rose, like he has this rose that Haman gave him at some point, which he has had uh, plated. Specially preserved. So that it will last. And he always has it tucked into uh, his jacket on his left side breast. Uh, and he likes to touch it and smell it. Although I presume having been coated, it doesn't smell like anything. But he holds it all the time. Yes. And this is a, a common affectation for a certain kind of character in that sort of shoujo tradition. But all of this doesn't just tell us something about Mashima as a character. It's not just there to be, you know, funny or, or interesting. It's also part of the overall point of these episodes and part of the overall themes and messaging of Double Zeta, at least so far. Another one of the reasons why we chose to link these two episodes together, besides Mashima's introduction, is that they share a theme of uh, low versus high, of the poor against the rich, of, of class warfare. And what links them together, really uh, undeniably, is the way the first one ends and the second one begins. They both have a scene of the Argama burying itself in the junkyard. This in itself is noteworthy because Gundam rarely does the thing where the end of one episode becomes the beginning of the next episode. They actually do this even going from our previous episode into episode three. You know, it ends with the suitcase shooting off into space and then the next one begins suitcase shooting off into space. Yeah, these episodes are very tightly linked in that way. Um, but the linkage between 3 and 4 is even a little bit more interesting because while 3 ends and 4 begins with a scene of the Argama burying itself in a junkyard, it is not the same scene. Within the world of the show, the Argama buried itself at the end of 3, dug itself out between the two, and buried itself again somewhere else at the beginning of 4 which is uh, a long distance to go for the sake of including this scene twice, so we know it must be important. What this does is it then links back to the previous episode, episode two, the, the first proper episode, and we get uh, a contrast between, on the one hand, Judo and his friends and the Argama together. Uh, they're too poor, they can't afford to pay their bills, the Argama can't afford repairs, they live in and hide in junkyards and run-down slums of this colony versus Mashima, who shows up with a suitcase full of gold to use as a bribe to get access to the port, and then seemingly infinite amounts of gold thereafter to pay for luxurious, super opulent hotel stays. Even beyond that, the fact that the local officials accepted the gold tells us that corruption is rampant, 
One of the only other people who we see in the hotel lobby is a woman wearing a fur coat and fur hat. With her dachshund. <laughs> With her dachshund. Although it's a weird dachshund, its face is not, <laughs> it does not have a dachshund face. Future dachshund. It's true. Lord knows what dachshunds will look like in the universal century. Uh, it's a new type of dachshund. <laughs> I did wonder with the gold, I feel like precious metals and, and other alternatives to currency have a sort of reputation when they're used in this way, that they're being used by fringe groups who don't want their use of money or credit to be traceable, who don't necessarily have access to banking. Right. I mean, this is a rogue state kind of thing. I assume Axis does not have its own currency. Well, they probably do, but it's not Gila's and it probably wouldn't be accepted. Anywhere by anyone. <laughs> Precisely. So Mashima's whole thing uh, is this refinement, wealth, elegance, aristocracy. And his mission here on side one seems to be, you know, he chides Gotten when his adjutant shows up at the hotel wearing a military uniform. He says, you showing up here like that is undermining my mission. So his mission is like basically to fit in with and disarm the high society of Shangri-La. I'm one of you. We, Axis Zeon, are people that you can deal with. You understand us. We understand you. We're all elites here. You don't need to be worried about us. But at the same time, because of his idealism, he has this notion that all of the uh, sort of low young people that he encounters need to be saved and that Axis is going to do that. Yes. Well, that he personally is going to do it once he has defeated the Argama and established his control over this colony. It did make me laugh that in some ways Axis has correctly identified a problem, if not a solution, which is to say they can see that in places like Shangri-La, like Colony One, young people are suffering and have sort of been abandoned by or left behind by society, but identifies them as victims of that. Like, they're kids. They didn't create this situation. They're just trying to live in it, and it's adults' responsibility to try to fix it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not uncommon for radicals coming from very different parts of the political spectrum to agree on what the problems are even if they have completely opposite ideas about how things should be reformed. Mashima also says the quiet part loud when he admits that high-spirited youths are an asset in war, which immediately made me think of uh, the fact that it is very common for extremist groups to target discontented young people for recruitment. Yeah. Well, and it has to also make us think about uh, the Axis powers in World War II, especially since he is from, what was his, what was that <laughs> asteroid called again? <laughs> Axis. Oh yeah. Okay. What a weird coincidence. Anyway, um, when Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan were losing, when their manpower resources were exhausted, both of them on a massive scale started turning to kids, Judo's age to fill the gap. Mashima might be saying it, but the Argama is doing it in two ways. Uh, both by having Shinta and Kum actually doing labor on the Argama as the cooks now, which <laughs> I love this scene so much. We're definitely going to have to come back and talk about it specifically. Uh, but also 
It's a little bit ambiguous because of the way it's all presented, but it really seems like Bright has a plan to entrap Judo into the cockpit of the Zeta in this oh, episode. absolutely. Bright has put one and one and one together <laughs> and has realized that it would seem in his experience uh, people who go on to become new types and very skilled pilots are just sort of drawn to mobile suits and tend to hop into the cockpit, ready or not, uh, certainly without permission. <laughs> I, I cannot possibly overstate how important this little revelation Bright has had is to Double Zeta, but also to the legacies of First Gundam and Zeta. Um, three times makes a pattern, right? Yeah. So merely the fact that Amuro had stolen the Gundam and Camille had stolen the Gundam was not quite enough. Both Judo doing it also, and now with this scene making it very clear, we understand that the act of theft, stealing the Gundam, is an essential part of the heroism that these young boys engage in. It is not merely a necessity of circumstances, it is key to what they are doing. That scene where Bright is thinking through his memories of what's happened also hammers home that we are not the only ones who have been through all of the events of first, second, and now our third Gundam series. Bright has been there basically the whole time. Yeah. And so, in theory, is capable of making many of the same connections that we have made watching those shows. He has a lot of the same information. Not all of it, but quite a lot of it. <laughs> oh, this is not really related, but it made me think of it. Gundam is often not great at making any any reference, any nods to characters who are deceased. But we do get a mention of Saigusa here. Mm -hmm. uh, Bright wants some rather delicate flying done. And Saigusa's replacement is like, I'm no Saigusa. I'm not sure I can do it. Yeah, I liked that too. I made a note of that reminder as well, because I think it's an artifact of the somewhat disunited writing team that we noted so often in Zeta Gundam. The episode in which Saigusa's death occurred was written by Suzuki. The intervening episode, in which no acknowledgement of his death is made, was written by Endo. And then this fourth episode, in which his death is acknowledged once again, written by Suzuki. There is a um, cheekiness to Judo and his friends and how they treat adults that I think is, is different from previous Gundam series and is also part of what Mashima identifies as like societal decay. <laughs> like, how dare teens like mouth off to adults and call us pops <laughs> <laughs> and try to steal my mobile suit. <laughs> I do think it's worth remembering how often... Uh, moral panics in various societies have to do with kids these days have no respect for their elders. Like, <laughs> uh, Oh, totally. That is very much the vibe I get from Haman talking about societal decay, Mashima talking about societal decay. Like, obviously, there are deep-seated class issues and there's suffering happening inside one that needs to be addressed, but they seem just as concerned about the politeness aspect <laughs> as they do about the material conditions. Yeah. Mashima doesn't encounter these kids and then think about the like 
material conditions that they're living under and why they're living like this. He doesn't even think those kids should be in school. He thinks, like, I need to clean up this colony. And whenever you hear someone talking about cleaning things up, that's usually at least a yellow flag. And his thought when he sees Fa is, oh, like a flower in a slum. Like <laughs> She's not even from here. Also, like, yeah, the war has been hard for her, but in some ways, maybe also good. It's complicated. Like, <laughs> And she's certainly not self-pitying, or at least we don't get any of that sort of vibe for her and haven't since she first joined the crew, basically. Yeah. Uh, is she their only non-injured pilot right now? She is, yeah. <laughs> well, and the Methos is all busted up. The hilarity of Judo thinking he's going to save Fado when he can barely walk in the Seda <laughs> is... <laughs> Not that he doesn't help. He absolutely does. But there's a lot of unearned confidence there. <laughs> oh, we get another flash of the less cheery, less confident him. In the first of these two episodes, when Judo hops into the Zeta, at one point, Bright says, like, well, okay, are you sure? <laughs> and he says, I'm not sure. And he looks a little sad or nervous for a moment and then says, but I'd better try it anyway <laughs> and gives you, like, a cheeky grin. That's just his personality, I guess. <laughs> Which does make him more receptive to advice, guidance, mentoring. Like, it's only a small thing. But in the second of these two episodes, when he's going out to fight, uh, Bright is on the comm circuit giving him advice about what to do. We also, again, see the power of this group that he has, the power of Judo's gang, his crew, because he is swiftly losing oxygen <laughs> out in space. And he's almost losing consciousness. He's sort of given up. Mashima is about to crash him into the side of the colony. But Bright and his sister and his friends all call out to him and cheer him on and tell him, Gambate, which means, like, keep trying. Do your best. And he wakes up and he pulls a slick little maneuver. Well, it's even more obvious in the prior episode because... You know, he's fighting Mashima in the junkyard. Fa actually flies all of his friends over so that they can watch him fight. Very dangerous for them to be there. No conceivable reason for her to do that, except that their presence is motivating for him. He needs them to be there. We also get the introduction of Elle. Two things struck me about her. The crisscrossing straps on the back of her jacket remind me of the like strap you wear if you're wearing kimono and you need to tie your sleeves out of the way because mm. you're doing martial arts or housework or whatever. Like there's a, a strip of cloth that you use that you wrap around your arms and it crisscrosses on the back like that and it keeps your sleeves out of the way while you're working. And obviously that's not exactly what it is and she wouldn't need that <laughs> for her jacket anyway. But it is like a small and very culturally specific visual signifier for like, this is a young woman who does action. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it also made me wonder, when did the trope of group includes one girl <laughs> start to be a thing? Because it's very common in American animation. It's, uh, I think it's common across all different kinds of animation, really. It's, it's such a trope. Group of five, one of them's a girl. Yeah. That's, that's the exact numbers for this group. 
And then Lena is the kind of sidekick. Yeah, she's not really part of the core group. Well, and they're all kind of color-coded, too. I don't know. All the other boys are just sort of brown. No, Beecha's <laughs> like yellowish. Judo's in red. L's in pink. And then it's true that Mondo and Eno have very similar color schemes, but I, I bet we could separate them if we one really of them's put our minds to it. One of them's more green. I, I think Beecha's in yellow, but it's like a brownish yellow. The the other three. All right, they're not a Sentai team, right? But but it is true that they they color coded the leader in red, also super common. Uh, that was actually <laughs> one of my favorite little tidbits of information from when I took film classes. Is that when Technicolor first became a thing, uh, they had their own camera operators. You had to bring in their consultants to do your color design because people were so unused to color in film that they didn't really know how to make it good. <laughs> uh, and one thing that they always did is you always colored the lead actress's costumes red. Like red is your lead visual focal point. It's where all the attention goes, naturally. That's why everyone likes Char so much. I don't know where else this would go, so I'm just going to mention it. But apparently the Gallus J has cruise control. <laughs> That's not a new feature, though. Um, that goes all the way back to First Gundam, because when... At the last episode, Amuro had to send the headless, armless Gundam ahead to like fire up into the air to try to take out Char. He did some kind of similar cruise control thing. I just assumed that Amuro was so skilled he like programmed it to do something special. But it's very stark here because Mashima is leaning out of the cockpit to talk to Judo <laughs> and the Gallus J is just walking. Just keeps walking along. There's a lot of very funny moments in these episodes, and I think basically all of them land, at least for me. You know, personal tastes will differ, but I really liked the humor in these episodes. Every time somebody falls out of a cockpit or almost falls out of a cockpit. Or when Judo and Mashima are like hanging out of the cockpit oh. and kicking each other in the face and groin. It's very funny. I'm not above finding humor in someone being kicked in the groin. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially when it's Judo or Mashima and both of them are so, like, cocksure. <laughs> I said I wanted to come back to that scene with Shinta and Kum in yes. the kitchen. Can we go back there now? Yes, let's do it. First of all, this is an amazing scene. It's so rare to see Shinta and Kum interacting with each other instead of with other people. And it's really nice uh, seeing them back in the show actually doing something for once. Uh, and it's funny just seeing them like doing zero-G cooking stuff, and, bread uh, floating all over the place, Haro hassling them. Seeing them interact with one of the crew and be like, you already had all your meals for today. Here, take <laughs> a bread and get out. <laughs> Covering for judo while they're doing that child solidarity against the adults, even though Keith Ron is probably like two years older than Judo. No, he's probably like four years older than Judo. Of course, you know his name. <laughs> I'm very amused by Shinta. He is that particular class of very certain about things young child who's like, oh, I just know about people. <laughs> I just look at people and I know if they're good. This scene and also some of the flashbacks later reminded me of how comfortable judo seems in low gravity and zero gravity yes uh, all of them in this episode it's like the uh it's like the creators have suddenly remembered how zero g works and that they can do fun visual things with it like at one point 
I don't think we talked about it when it first happened, but they flash back to when he first opens the Zeta cockpit and it knocks him back, uh, but then he hooks his feet under the edge of it and pulls himself back in. It's so yeah nicely choreographed and fun. The bit where Judo uh, bombs the Gallus is fantastic in this, right? Because it's not just about how Zero-G works, but it shows this beautiful, intuitive understanding of how gravity works specifically in the colonies, right? Because the Argama is in the center of the rotating colony, there is no gravity there. So uh, it's all effectively Zero-G, which is why Judo is able to do a lot of the things that he does here. But when he puts the bomb on the Gallus and he knocks it off of the Argama and out of the center, it then becomes affected by the colony's pseudo-gravity, and that's why Mashima isn't able to get control of it again, and he slams into the ground. And his friends mention it when they're all hiking out to look for the Argama. One of them is complaining about how long they've had to walk, and another says, we're in the low-gravity part of the colony. It shouldn't be that hard for you. (laughs) And again, in this scene where he plasters himself up on the ceiling of the room over the doorway, he's just used to moving in this kind of environment. He also treats Shinta and Kum very respectfully. He doesn't really talk down to them. He treats them as people. He introduces himself. And then after they've introduced themselves, he high fives Kum and he like low fives Shinta. And what really felt like uh, kids these days are always high fiving each other, aren't they? They're doing weird things with their hands. I thought it felt very natural. But it also feels very much of its moment in the mid 80s. Yes, that's true. We also get to hear Judo call the Titans an army of jerks, which is a great translation. Just the best. (laughs) I think that's a fantastic translation, personally. Just the best way of describing the Titans, yeah. Uh, So we know he's aware of them. We know he does have some feeling about them. Uh, There isn't any particular sense that he's had a ton of direct contact with them beyond Yazan, but there's a reputation and it's bad. This doesn't really fit with our other discussions, but I was thinking of the, it's almost like the opposite of a day six machina, but the hilarious contrivance of, well, we need to get Fa out of the way so that Judo has to protect the Argama. What if her Jeep just gets stuck? (laughs) What if her Jeep is just stuck for an entire episode? (laughs) Well, both episodes have to come up with a justification for Fa being unable to solve the problem and Judo needing to. And I think it's, more than a little telling about the writer's proclivities that uh, the endo-written episode decides to have Fa go out but be unable to do anything, and then the Suzuki-written episode has Fa busy with other stuff and then getting stuck. I was also deeply amused that Lena, when she needs assistance dealing with her brother's attempted thefts of the Zeta, decides she's going to get in touch with a young woman she's met once before, but who seems very responsible. <laughs> Frankly, Lena here is being very wise. Fa is the best person to go to when you have a problem that needs to be solved. Especially if it has to do with teenage boy mobile suit pilots. Fa just has a good head on her shoulders. Well, and this is Lena's M.O. The other time she was looking for help dealing with her brother, she got it by bribing L. That actually brings up something interesting, which is uh, up until now, throughout all of First Gundam and all of Zeta, there has been almost no attention paid to money, transactional relationships, the economy. Like, Amaro gave Kai some tools to try to sell when they were laid over in Ireland. 
Shar gave Sela a briefcase full of gold. Like, it's not that money hasn't been there, but it hasn't been important. Whereas these episodes are all about money and there are transactions happening all over the place. In the isolation of a military ship environment, all of the money needs are being handled by other people. Like someone is making sure that you get supplies and probably that's involving money, exchanging hands or promises. But in those first two series, most of the time money comes up, it has to do with civilians. You know, Miharu needs money for her siblings. Now we're in double Zeta, our main characters are civilians. Money is of prime importance. If they did manage to steal the Zeta, who would they sell it to? Presumably, they have connections that they sell escape pods and wrecked Hyzax to. Although Judo specifically mentions that he takes mobile suits apart and sells them, probably they would want to keep the Zeta together because the, the cachet of a Gundam is so uh, important and, and valuable. But they could also, you know, sell Zeta Gundam left arm servo motor B. <laughs> they might know someone who operates a chop shop. You know, Earlier, you mentioned how uh, Judo really like takes strength from his friends, from having them around, from their encouragement. And on the other hand, we see that Mashima is very much about himself. Uh, all of his relationships are very hierarchical. Uh, he's very proud of his own skills and, and very protective of his own sense of honor and chivalry. And of course, when he fails, he blames it on other people on his subordinates for being stupid. This creates a conflict between teamwork on the one hand and individualism on the other. Now, teamwork versus individualism is not exactly a new or rare or revolutionary message for a show, for anime in general, but it is a pretty direct contrast to Zeta, which was really the story of Camille taking on a whole world's worth of burdens by himself with little to no support. Like, he got some emotional support from Fa, but the show contrived to make her essentially unable to help him with the most important things he was supposed to do. There was no sense of the Argama being a community that supported him. And now part one of the research on Shangri-La. These first episodes of a show are always vital for setting the mood, establishing the characters, and exploring the themes that will, if the show is made well, continue to resound throughout its runtime. To put it another way, we are in the middle, or perhaps coming to the end, of Double Zeta's thesis statement. So, while we here at Mobile Suit Breakdown like to think that we are in the business of always paying close attention to what the show is saying, both in the text and the subtext, right now, we must pay especially close attention to what Double Zeta is doing, and particularly to what Double Zeta is doing differently from its predecessors. After all, we are now looking at the third Gundam series. Double Zeta has consciously and quite overtly cast itself as the next link in an unbroken chain going back through to First Gundam. It does this in numerous ways, perhaps most obviously through the progression of the three new types in the opening animation, through Bright's flashbacks to prior Gundam jackings, and of course through the title of the show itself. With all of that in mind, 
here is an observation that might interest you. After three full episodes, Double Zeta has now spent more time in Shangri-La than any prior Gundam series has spent in any space colony. First Gundam spent two episodes on side seven, two episodes on side six, and two episodes in the Texas colony. Zeta Gundam counted two episodes on Grips, two episodes in Von Braun City, uh, plus a scattered handful of episodes that were spent partially in or around Granada. The only time I can think of when prior Gundam shows spent more than two episodes in one physical locality was the new Hong Kong City arc of Zeta. But while Hong Kong is a former colony, it is not a space colony, and in any event, the new Hong Kong City arc was only three episodes long. If next week's episode of Double Zeta is again set in Shangri-La, as it certainly seems that it must be, then Shangri-La will reign supreme as the most persistent location in the whole Gundam canon up to this point. The time spent here has allowed our understanding of Shangri-La to grow in both breadth and depth. It is not merely a generic interchangeable backdrop for their adventures. From the palatial garden estate come hotel where Mashima is staying, to the vast oceans of debris in the city-sized junkyards where the Argama lurks, from the barren local store where Lena buys fresh milk, to the modern hospital where Camille is recuperating, the place has become a character in its own right and it conveys a great deal to us about the world that has shaped our heroes. This week I will cover where the name Shangri-La comes from and what it means. I'll also begin to explore the ways its origin parallels what we see in Double Zeta. Then, next week, I will continue to explore those connections and offer some speculation about what kind of insight the original Shangri-La can offer about its Universal Century successor and how Double Zeta's depiction of Shangri-La challenges the easy interpretations of the original. So, why the name Shangri-La? The name itself is significant enough that the characters repeatedly draw attention to it in the dialogue. Recall from episode 2 when Bright, frustrated that the Argama cannot get the repairs it desperately needs because of its cash shortage, and stung by the recalcitrance of the spaceport's mechanics, snarls, I'm sick and tired of hearing the name Shangri-La. Or, later, when Mashima refers to the colony as Colony 1, probably its formal designation, and then he corrects himself, no, it's Shangri-La. Today, the name Shangri-La is used generally to describe an idyllic, usually remote, usually spiritual place of refuge from the world. It's often used to express an obsessive, lifelong quest in pursuit of a hidden and perhaps impossible goal, kind of like the Holy Grail, El Dorado, or a universally consistent definition of the Gundam canon. Both the name and this meaning come originally from the 1933 novel Lost Horizon by James Hilton, which describes the journey of four Westerners, three English, one American, to a remote and idyllic monastery, Shangri-La, in a secret valley amid the mountains in or near Tibet. I'll speak more about the book in a moment because I think Gundam's use of the term Shangri-La is a reference to the book specifically, and not merely to the more generic ideas of utopian mysticism that have attached to the name in common usage. But for the moment, let me stay with the word itself and the power that it has over people. Because 
Lost Horizon is one of that class of novels which, although fantastical, has just enough of a sense of realism about it, and borrows just enough from existing traditions, that some readers become convinced that there must be some truth behind the story of Shangri-La. There have been innumerable efforts over the years to find the true location of Shangri-La, or at least to find the spot that inspired Hilton to invent Shangri-La. And in more recent years, enterprising local governments in the region where Shangri-La was said to lie have been happy to borrow the name and its associations for the benefit of their own tourism industries. There is even a county in China's Yunnan province, bordering the Tibetan Autonomous Region, that has, since 2001, been officially called Shangri-La. As I am neither James Hilton nor one of the monks of Shangri-La Monastery, I cannot say with any authority whether any of these expeditions have successfully discovered the true location of Shangri-La. But none of them have produced an answer sufficiently compelling to forestall further efforts to locate the true location of Shangri-La. So it kind of seems like maybe the search for the real location of Shangri-La is just a, you know, a lifelong quest to find a hidden and perhaps impossible goal. In the original novel, Shangri-La is the name of a monastery which overlooks and, in a very real sense, rules over a tiny but astonishingly fertile valley in the shadow of the mighty mountain Karakul. The valley and the mixed Tibetan-Chinese community that resides within are referred to as Blue Moon, which we are told is the literal translation of Karakul. It is a remote, hidden, and inaccessible place, surrounded on all sides by inhospitable mountain terrain. Despite this, the valley itself is miraculously warm. On the cliff sides, the climate approaches temperate. Further below, on the valley floor, it is tropical. There is only one path in, a forbidding switchback mountain trail that winds sharply up the sheer cliffs. The height of this path is not made clear, but traversing it is the work of many hours, even for experienced climbers. And on that steep ascent, clinging to the edge of the defile, is the monastery of Shangri-La. To quote the book itself, To Conway, seeing it first, it might have been a vision fluttering out of that solitary rhythm in which lack of oxygen had encompassed all his faculties. It was, indeed, a strange and half-incredible sight. A group of colored pavilions clung to the mountainside, with none of the grim deliberation of a Rhineland castle but rather with the chance delicacy of flower petals impaled upon a crag. It was superb and exquisite. An austere emotion carried the eye upward, from milk-blue roofs to the gray rock bastion above, tremendous as the Vetterhorn above Grindelwald. Beyond that, in a dazzling pyramid, soared the snow slopes of Caracal. It might well be, Conway thought, the most terrifying mountainscape in the world, and he imagined the immense stress of snow and glacier against which the rock functioned as a giant retaining wall. Someday, perhaps, the whole mountain would split, and a half of Caracal's icy splendor come toppling into the valley. He wondered if the slightness of the risk, combined with its fearfulness, might even be found agreeably stimulating. It seems that Conway and his companions have come to Shangri-La by chance, as the result of an extraordinary series of events. The novel begins in early 1931, with the four of them escaping from Bashkol, a tiny and altogether out-of-the-way town in what is now northern Iran. While tiny and out-of-the-way, the American character in classic American fashion describes it as a one-horse town, 
Bashkal hosts a British imperial consulate staffed by Conway, the consul and our main character, and his assistant, the young and hot-headed Mallinson. The American, Barnard, is a businessman in the area for some business-related reason, and the fourth, the only woman in the group, Miss Brinklow, is a missionary. Bashkal is in the middle of an uprising, which the book does not specifically identify, but which might be a reference to the Jafar Sultan revolt. The location is roughly correct, and the timeline is just a few months off. Conway has managed to convince the rebels to allow the foreigners living in Bashkal to evacuate by air. British military transports do most of the work, leaving the last four, our four, to evacuate aboard the private luxury plane of a local potentate, pressed into service for the evacuation. Unbeknownst to them, however, their plane is hijacked by a mysterious pilot who flies them not to the British stronghold at Peshawar, but beyond it, past Pakistan, past India, and into the Himalayas. There, hundreds of miles from any human habitation and in the most inhospitable terrain known to humankind, the pilot suffers a heart attack and the plane crashes. The passengers, battered, hungry, and desperate, set out from the ruined plane looking for any kind of refuge. And there they are found by a party from the valley, come to meet them and lead them back to the hidden sanctuary of Shangri-La. This opening to the novel gives us our first crucial points of alignment with Double Zeta. First, the condition of the four visitors when they arrive in Shangri-La is much like that of the Argama and its crew. They are exhausted. Their ship, or plane, is wrecked, and they are in desperate need. Their journey to Shangri-La is not made by choice, but forced on them by circumstances. In both cases, they find the inhabitants of Shangri-La accommodating, up to a point. The monks in the novel don't ask for money from the outsiders, like in Gundam, but much of what the travelers ask for, like information or assistance getting back to quote-unquote civilization, is refused, or at least perpetually forestalled. And the frustration felt by the novel's characters, in particular the 24-year-old Mallinson, is a nice match for the frustration expressed by 28-year-old Bright Noah. Another parallel event, which feels like one that could be explained away as mere coincidence were it not for all of the other links that bind Lost Horizon and Double Zeta together, is the death in the preliminary chapters of the Stolen Plains hijacker pilot, on the one hand, and of the Argama's helmsman, Sayagusa, in the first proper episode of Double Zeta. And then there's the gold. There's a reason Axis can throw around suitcases full of gold and Mashima can drop bricks of it to overpay for his hotel stay. As a side note, the gold bar Mashima uses in the hotel scene looks to be about 100 ounces based on its size in relationship to his hand. In 1988, that would have been worth about 45,000 US dollars. And as of this writing, it would be worth around 200,000. But remember, Axis was a resource mining asteroid, and it has only very recently arrived from the asteroid belt where it presumably was part of a larger mining operation. And while gold may be a rare and precious metal here on Earth, out in the asteroid belt, with ready access to metallic asteroids that we believe to be chock full of gold and platinum, it would not be. Axis would have access to effectively infinite amounts of gold. Likewise in Shangri-La. The walls of the cliffs are rich with gold, 
and it is by extracting and trading this metal, which is useless both to the monks and the people of the valley, that the monastery is able to obtain the many foreign luxuries that make life there so comfortable. In a larger sense, though, Double Zeta and Lost Horizon are both stories about small people on the margins of great empires collapsing. Although written in the early 1930s before the real, final disintegration of the great colonial empires of the 19th century, Lost Horizon repeatedly envisages their end. Conway, himself a cog within the grand imperial project of Britain, can see how the machine is already breaking down. A veteran of the First World War, an experience that has rendered him, in his own words, passionless, Conway sees the empire as pointless vanity doomed to end in fire and blood. And he is not alone. The founder of Shangri-La, quote, foresaw a time when men, exultant in the technique of homicide, would rage so hotly over the world that every precious thing would be in danger, every book and picture and harmony, every treasure gathered through two millenniums, the small, the delicate, the defenseless, all would be lost like the lost books of Livy, or wrecked as the English wrecked the summer palace in Peking. I should note that while this is written after the First World War, it is very clear from the text that they are not referencing the First World War there. They are talking about some future, even worse war. Likewise, Barnard the American is revealed to be a disgraced financier from Wall Street, one who lost hundreds of millions of other people's money in the markets. As a historical note, Converted into today's values, the sum that Barnard is said to have lost would have been, at a minimum, $3 billion, and probably many billions more. Barnard is a criminal, on the run from the police of every nation, but as he himself puts it, Look here, Conway, I'll put it like this. A fella does what he's been doing for years, and what lots of other fellas have been doing, and suddenly the market goes against him. He can't help it, but he braces up, and he waits for the turn. But somehow, the turn don't come as it always used to. And when he's lost $10 million or so, he reads in some paper that a Swede professor thinks it's the end of the world. Now I ask you, does that sort of thing help the markets? Of course, it gives him a bit of a shock, but he still can't help it. And there he is, till the cops come. If he waits for them. I didn't. Barnard's empire is a financial one rather than territorial, but it is an empire all the same, and it has collapsed. And so are all of the other financial empires. They are all collapsing, and their world seems to be coming to an end. All blown away by a financial calamity, Barnard likens to a typhoon that leaves no safety anywhere. As Conway puts it a moment later, well, we'll all admit you couldn't help the typhoon. And the thing is, remember that this novel was written and set in the early 1930s. Barnard's massive stock failure must have been part of the Wall Street crash of 1929, the one that ushered in the Great Depression. He really couldn't help the typhoon. For all his wealth and his power, he was just a small person caught up in an historical moment driven by forces outside the meaningful control of any individual. Double Zeta is also a story about a society in grand scale and slow motion collapse. The ineffectiveness of the Federation's government, the impoverishment of the colonies and their people, the rise of the Titans and the return of Neo-Zeon are all symptoms of a society on its deathbed. It may yet live on. It may linger forever on the verge of death, or it may even revive and return to enjoy an unnatural second period of vigor 
as one of the characters in Lost Horizon does. But for now, it descends toward Death's Gate. Next week, I'm going to tell you what it all has to do with our characters, and you will learn the true secret of Shangri-La. Next time on episode 3.4, Compulsory Education, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 5, and a poor lost lamb. Dropping Yves. You leave Fa alone. Haman Karn, font of wisdom. Why is Yazan dressed like a bandit? You know, you, you know. Going to school to own the Ayug? Justice for Fa! Zeta no Ippo. Guess who wrote this one? And Rock'em Sock'em Robots. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, The English spelling for his name is perfect, because it is pronounced Ma, shy, meal ready to eat. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. Oh, Tom, you ought to be used to my oddities now. Your proclivities? Well, I am used to them. It's just that... In all fairness, some of them ought not to be humored. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, took a stab at writing out the kanji today for one of the the words in one of the episode titles. Mm. It doesn't look good. (laughs) At least I remembered the stroke order rules, mostly. You're very out of practice. So out of practice. Interesting. I think so. (laughs) Well, I think it is interesting. Okay. While Camille chases the mobile suit. Uh, Judo. Sorry. I'm constantly having to adjust that in my head. (laughs) I just want to call the protagonist Camille all the time. And the show Zeta all the time. Sending it pitching forward and tipping him and tipping he and I don't know if it's supposed to be him or he and tipping both of them out.
That was awful. <laughs> Very scary. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you bring that up? Because uh, being afraid will heighten my, my, uh, my senses. It'll make me a better podcaster. And you will learn the dreadful secret of Shangri-La. It's not actually dreadful. What's a good, what's a good adjective there? Mashima Cello. Now, his name is spelled like it should be pronounced cello, but his Cero. 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 Mashima Cero. And it's not a long E, it's just like Cero. Of course you know his name. <laughs> they sing it in the episode. And then I made sure I remembered it. <laughs> we talked about all the things that I had to talk about. Okay. And I'm going to say that last line again as though it were the last line. I've got my gun trained on you, Lieutenant Yazan Gable. Now, put your hands in the air like you don't care. Is that reference going to fly, I wonder? Do people remember Cameo? <sighs> Boy, I feel old sometimes. didn't like any of those takes. Not gonna lie. I feel like I lost her. I took lunch and now I'm like I don't I don't feel like I'm her anymore. Did you hear that? Yo, where are you at? Maybe they're asking me. I don't know. Outside my window. That concludes this recording. Hopefully it's better. I feel like when I was recording in the closet, there was less sound, but maybe I'm wrong. Also, I liked it in the closet. I might just go sit there today. 